The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. And welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. It's always great to be with you and the Leslie Marshall family. And I'm excited to come to you today with my friend and colleague, Igor Volsky. Hello, Michelle. Yay. From a very hot afternoon here in D.C. We're sweating. Burning up. (laughs) Everywhere. Um, And if you're in the city or if you're not, either way, we want to hear from you. Go ahead and give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And Igor and I are coming to you together today because we are launching um, a new endeavor here at the Center for American Progress. And we're really excited to tell you about it. Yeah, it's called Thinking Cap, a weekly podcast about the voices and the issues driving the resistance. Each week we will break down a key news item dominating the conversation and give you tangible action steps for what you can do to hold this administration accountable. Our first episode, Michelle. That's right. This uh, this very day launched with no other than Senator Cory Booker. Uh, of New Jersey and Ben. Yes, Yay! thank you. And he was awesome, you guys. So please go check us out. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, um, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And why I'm really excited um, is because we are going to bring great voices, the same way Leslie does a great job with her listeners of really unpacking really difficult and challenging issues. Um, I'm excited because we're going to continue in that vein. And today, to help us unpack one of the most ridiculous issues um, out there, um, our two guests to our show, none other than Ari Berman. He's the senior contributing writer at The Nation magazine and fellow at The Nation Institute. He's also the author of uh, an amazing book. If you haven't read it yet, please go check it out. Check it out give us the ballot the model the modern struggle for voting rights in america ari welcome hey michelle hey igor hey ari and as i told you i have your book sitting on my desk and now i will actually read it i promise (laughs) that's good i mean i'm glad you have to have me on the radio to read the book (laughs) that's all it takes Ari. that's it let's check back in a few weeks okay yeah give me the quiz um and also joining us none other than emily sewell she's a voting rights staff attorney at the southern coalition for social justice uh she's a regular speaker and contributor on a number of issues around voting rights and we're so excited to have her with us emily welcome to the show hi michelle and igor thank you guys both for having me Thanks, Emily. So we wanted to kind of take a step back from the craziness of this week. And yes, we will talk about Russia soon. Don't (laughs) worry. And Comey and all of that and the special counsel. But last week, President Trump, or as I just call him, Donald Trump, still still so hard to say President Trump. Yeah. Um, finally named the commission that he had been threatening us with 
to look into what he calls voter irregularities uh, around the country, voter fraud. Of course, after losing the election, the popular vote in the election, this is something he has harped on. And now we have this commission that's tasked with investigating what many people say never happened, and that is voter fraud to the tune of three million votes illegally cast. Trump uh, claims were cast uh, illegally in favor of Hillary Clinton. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Ari, break this down for us. What kind of mandate does this commission have? Uh, and then what do you see as really the, the, the goal behind it? Sure. So, I mean, I think you have to first start off, uh, Igor, with the ridiculousness of this commission even being formed in the first place. Uh, because if President Trump hadn't tweeted that three to five million people voted illegally, which there's absolutely no evidence of, we would have never had a commission, um, let alone a presidential commission. And I, I think it's extremely ironic that the same week he fired the director of the FBI and tried to shut down an investigation into Russian interference in the election, which we knew, which we actually know happened, we are now having an election into something that, having an investigation into something that did not happen, which is millions of people voting illegally. But, I mean, it's, it's very concerning because uh, some of the people appointed to this commission, um, namely the vice chair, uh, Chris Kobach, the secretary of state of Kansas, have a very long record of both um, making lots of uh, unfounded allegations about voter fraud and also uh, advocating policies that would make it harder to vote. And so now uh, this whole movement, both to exaggerate the threat of voter fraud and to push for policies that make it harder to vote has presidential status, meaning it has a huge platform, meaning they have access to resources they didn't previous have, previously have access to, access to White House staff, access to Trump administration staff. And so I think, unfortunately, it's going to perpetuate the myth that voter fraud is a big and widespread problem in American elections. It's also going to make recommendations, both to Congress and the states, to do things like more voter ID laws, more proof of citizenship laws for voter registration, more, more voter purges. And that kind of thing could be very harmful for our democracy. So um, one of the other things that happened early this week, and our days blend in together, um, but the Supreme Court on Monday uh, decided not to revive uh, what was called the monster voter suppression bill coming out of North Carolina, uh, a federal appeals court. So the court below the Supreme Court decided uh, that it was an unconstitutional effort, and I quote, to target African-Americans with almost surgical precision. I'm a UNC law grad, and so when I saw this decision and worked on these issues in clinic and law school, Emily, when I saw this decision, I was overjoyed. Um, <laughs> what was your reaction? I mean, you, you and Anita and so many others at the Southern Coalition have been involved since day one, but how did you feel when that decision came down? Well, we consider this a big win. Uh, the Fourth Circuit found that North Carolina intentionally discriminated against black voters by reducing early voting opportunities, eliminating same-day voter registration, out-of-precinct voting if you go to the wrong place, and then pre-registration of high school students. And it also imposed a photo ID requirement. But then that very same day that the Supreme Court decision was issued, the leaders of the North Carolina Republican Party announced plans that they want to pass another voter ID law. 
Um, so they read the decision differently from us, and, and that's reminiscent of the 1950s in the South, when attorneys would win lawsuits about the discriminatory impact of a literacy test, and then the jurisdiction would slightly change the test and keep it um, as a means to disenfranchise black voters. That's what led to enactment of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in the first place. And, of course, Section 5 was struck down in 2013, just before House Bill 589, the monster voter suppression bill, was introduced in North Carolina. So in some ways, we've come full circle. Now, Emily, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm married to one. And when I hear words like intentionally discriminated, that to me sounds important. What evidence was there in this case that uh, North Carolina intentionally discriminated against people of color? In North Carolina, this law started out as just a voter ID law. So without those extra provisions that I mentioned about early voting and out-of-precinct voting and, and the impact on high school students, um, and while that was going on, so we have one bill, just voter ID, at that time the Supreme Court was deciding the case on whether to strike down Section 5. And what Section 5 does is requires jurisdictions with a history of discrimination against black voters, if they wanted to pass any kind of change to their election laws, they had to go to the federal government to get permission to do so because they had been bad actors in the past. And so North Carolina is watching this, and then the decision comes down from the Supreme Court that Section 5 no longer applies in North Carolina. So it doesn't need to get permission before it changes its laws. While it was watching this, it had gone to the DMV and to the State Board of Elections in North Carolina and asked for data broken down by race on who possessed certain types of IDs issued by the DMV and who used early voting, who used same-day registration. All of this broken down by race. And what it found was that black voters disproportionately lacked photo ID issued by the DMV, and they disproportionately relied on same-day registration, the extra week of early voting at the beginning, um, pre-registration in high schools. So once the law changed, North Carolina expanded into what we're calling this monster voter suppression law. So no longer just a voter ID law, much bigger. And it eliminated only those provisions that were disproportionately used by black voters. And that's what the Fourth Circuit looked at and said, this is intentional discrimination. So Ari, you know, we're I want to ask you to just start this conversation and then we'll take a quick break if you're listening. This is Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky on the Leslie Marshall show. Ari, this is a part of a pattern. How do we break out of this besides if we have things like gerrymandering that kind of create these situations where legislators do this over and over? How do we break that pattern? Well, I I think three ways. Uh, the first way is to elect different people. I mean, honestly, that's the simplest answer. Of mm -hmm. Don't elect people that are going to suppress the vote. Um, the second thing is to make people who do suppress the vote pay both a legal and political price for it. Because mm -hmm. uh, even when North Carolina Republicans lose in court, they still are trying to suppress the vote because they don't believe uh, that it's going to result in them getting voted out of office. And indeed, they're trying to make it harder to be voted out of office. And then I think three, um, try to make it easier to vote in the places where you can to build political support for a different kind of movement. So instead of talking about strict voter ID laws or cutting early voting, instead we're talking about automatic registration like Oregon is doing, or we're talking about a nationwide early voting, uh, things like that that we know uh, can increase voter turnout. So the conversation is not only about how to make it 
harder to vote, but how to make it actually easier to vote, because the problem we have in this country is not millions of people voting illegally or widespread voter fraud. It's that even on the best of days, we have a quarter of Americans who aren't even registered to vote, and we don't have higher than 60 percent turnout in any election. So that's the kind of thing we should be focusing on, and I think when it comes to voting, we're often having the precisely wrong conversation in this country. So we'll take a quick break. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back. The Leslie Marshall Show, and I'm your host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawanda, with Igor Volsky, also a vice president here at the Center for American Progress. All right, and we are back with Ari Berman, senior contributing writer at The Nation magazine, and Emily Silwell, voting rights attorney at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. So, Emily, you know, the Supreme Court, we're overjoyed because I think many people assume that with now Gorsuch on the court, if this decision made it there, uh, we could expect a negative outcome. But what are other cases that you are paying attention to that we haven't heard as much about? Well, related to voting rights, um, we're looking at some redistricting cases. There's a case called Harris v. McCrory out of North Carolina regarding racial gerrymanders in its congressional election districts. The court heard argument in that case back in December, and it hasn't yet issued its opinion. So that's one to keep an eye on, um, because as we were talking about earlier, if you want to elect different representatives, you need to elect them from fair districts. So the Harris case deals with the congressional districts in North Carolina, which a three-judge panel of a lower federal court has found was racial gerrymandering in North Carolina. So we're keeping an eye on that one, and then two associated cases that are tied to that, also dealing with racial gerrymandering in North Carolina by the legislature. Ari, I want to go back to a point you made before we went to break, this idea that when lawmakers pursue these kinds of voter restrictions, they never pay a political price, that there's not really a developed, or as far as I can tell, maybe there is, uh, but in my eyes, not really a developed constituency, strong advocacy to hold these state lawmakers accountable for trying to restrict the franchise. Talk about any efforts you see underway. I know Jason Kander has a new organization that's going to try to ensure that these lawmakers uh, face face a consequence uh, for passing or pushing these kinds of laws. But that appears to be an important piece of the puzzle, an important piece that will maybe prevent lawmakers from pushing reforms like these in the future. Yeah, I think that's right, Igor. I mean, the closest thing that we've seen to this was North Carolina um, with the Moral Monday movement that was led by Reverend William Barber, the president of the North Carolina NAACP, because they actually used voting rights and a bunch of related issues, but the core of it was voting rights as a way to get a lot of people in the streets to do mass civil disobedience, uh, help lay the groundwork uh, for not only blocking the law in court, uh, but electing a new Democratic governor there, um, making the state competitive uh, in repeated elections. And that's the kind of thing we need to see uh, elsewhere as well, because when Republican lawmakers in in North Carolina uh, passed the worst voter suppression law, 
they weren't just hit with lawsuits, because there's lots of good groups up there that are filing lawsuits, but they actually had to respond to demonstrations and public pressure and, and that kind of thing, which is often missing. So I think what, what Jason Kander is doing with Let America Vote is really important in terms of trying to make people pay a political price for, for voter suppression. But we need a lot um, more of that. And this also just has to be an issue that people are aware of, because one of my main frustrations during the last presidential election was that it was the first presidential election in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. But we had 26 presidential debates, and there wasn't a single question about voting rights. So if people aren't even aware that this stuff is occurring, then they're not going to be able to do anything about it. They're not going to face any public pressure. If it's not even asked the debate, if it doesn't even come up, then of course it's going to go below the radar and people are just going to keep suppressing the vote. Yeah, especially in the context of the resistance and ensuring that all of this energy we're seeing actually translates into political power in the voting booth. That's right. Uh, it seems more important now than ever. And and Emily, as we get ready to come to the end of this segment, you know, I think the winners of Monday's decision with the Supreme Court are definitely African-American voters in North Carolina. Um, but is there anyone else that we should be recognizing and highlighting as really coming out um, of that case uh, who really deserves uh, the gold star, so to speak? I think really it's just a good example of perseverance, right? So it's the whole civil rights community coming together and doing what Ari was talking, some of that expanding the base, getting people excited about voting rights, which is it's a wonky topic. It's hard to get excited about redistricting. Um, so the more we can get out there and explain to people how it affects them, how it affects their neighbors, and how it may affect some of their neighbors differently in ways that they haven't thought about before. Um, a lot of people think, hey, voter ID is common sense. But when you explain to them what the implications are or what the implications are of cutting a week of early voting for someone who isn't in the same position in life that you are, who can't necessarily take off from a job and go vote on election day. It, it opens some eyes. So I think it's been a win for the coalition in North Carolina, across the South, and across the nation. The more these, these cases have moved forward and the more the movement has built to really have fair voting rights in fair districts to elect our representatives from. Do you feel, quickly to both of you, we, we're, we're coming up against a break here. Do you feel like now that Trump has really put this into motion, and I think my sense of it was to create a pretense for further voter suppression down the road, depending on what, what this quote-unquote commission actually finds, very, very, very quickly, do you think this will kind of build up resistance to these kinds of laws now that Trump is directly involved? Ari, quickly to you. I think so. I mean, people are paying more attention to the attack on voting rights than they were before. However, the Trump news is overshadowing everything. So beyond the presidential commission, all of these states are still passing new voter suppression laws, and that's not getting any attention. So we can't just focus on Trump. We have to focus on what Republicans are doing in the states as well, because that machine just keeps churning on. Ari Berman with The Nation. Emily Sewell, thank you so much. We'll be right back after the break talking all things Russia. And welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show coming to you on Thursday, May 18th. And what has been another whirlwind week, um, as uh, someone pointed out, it feels like a year crammed into four days. Um, I'm back with my co-host. Hey, Michelle Igor Volsky here, also of the Center for American Progress. And we're here together because we have a new endeavor that Igor is going to tell you a little bit about. It's called Think 
Thinking Cap, a new weekly podcast from the Center for American Progress. Every single week, we break down the issues driving the news and then give you concrete actions you can take to hold this administration accountable. Our next guest here, Ken Good, we will drag him on that podcast very <laughs> soon, given the fact that our world is now dominated by all things Russia, which for me as a Russian person is actually quite exciting. Yeah, hey. So I, I enjoy that. But do subscribe to that podcast, Thinking Cap, on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcast, and leave us a comment so that other people can also discover the program. And if you want to follow uh, the, along with the show, you can go to at Leslie Marshall um, on Twitter or at Michelle Gerondo at Ken Good. K-E-N-G-U-D-E and at Igor Volsky uh, to keep the party going pretty much, right? Yeah. So Ken is a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress and he's a friend to those who have listened to the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, so Ken, we are... Con it feels like we are perpetually waiting for the next big thing. I mean, Ken hasn't slept in 100 hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's been, like, no yeah, sleep for it's you. it's crazy. Um, and you've had some really great pieces um, calling for a special counsel, special prosecutor, um, pushing the conversation why we need Comey to do X, Y, Z. So then last week we had this Comey firing. This week we have a special counsel. And what is happening now? Well, let me tell you, this last 10-day period has seen just an amazing number of lurching from crisis to crisis. It's a perpetual chaos administration. It is remarkable. And the notion now that we have a special prosecutor, we have Robert Mueller in, in that chair, and all of a sudden people are like, oh, this is a pause. Well, that's actually not the case at all. What this is is moving the investigation into a very critical phase. I think people uh, may have a, a sense here that things will calm down a bit, and maybe what we see outwardly, that's true. But what's going to happen is this investigation, which has already been going on for nine months, is really going to accelerate. It's really going to focus, and we could have some movement very quickly. We've already learned that uh, there are grand juries that have issued subpoenas targeting both former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn and uh, President Trump's uh, first or one of his campaign managers, Paul Manafort, that's already happening. And now we have this independent prosecutor that's going to come in and take over the case. Uh, and I think listeners should recall that you know we've had independent prosecutors before. More times than not, they end up in impeachment proceedings. Now, Ken, how did this ultimately happen? I mean, there was a lot of pressure from Democrats in Congress, some Republicans, and, of course, advocacy organizations saying now that there's some evidence that Trump may have in interfered directly with the Russia investigation, we really need to take it and put it into an independent space to make sure we get to the bottom of what happened. But I think yesterday, actually, Michelle and I were in this very room recording the podcast, and we were surprised to see this suddenly happen. I mean, right. why did it happen so quickly? Well, we saw this just accelerating so rapidly over the course of the last few days. Two things happened. One, Jim Comey got fired. In a way, he was a former FBI director, in a way that raised a lot of questions across the political spectrum. This mm -hmm. wasn't just Democratic activists that were freaking out about this. This was people were like, this is just completely inappropriate. And then, well, what, one of the reasons why people freaked out is you heard uh, that Comey requested additional funds yeah. for the investigation, yeah. and then the very next week was fired. Yeah, and, and they put forward this just ridiculously transparent 
uh, transparently fake reason for firing him, and that caused people to cause people alarm. And then we learned just earlier this week in one of the amazing bombshells that came out uh, that uh, the president had actually asked Jim Comey when he was FBI director to squash the investigation into Mike Flynn. Mm-hmm. Now. We don't know the exact details of that <laughs> of that uh, uh, conversation, um, but it certainly sounds like the kinds of activities that look like obstruction of justice. And that's where you really began to see the cracks forming yep. in the Republican support for Trump. That felt like a line uh, too far, especially yep. because obstruction of justice is an impeachable offense. Yeah, and that really, I think, prompted among other things, but prompted the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, who had the authority to appoint a special counsel to, to look into this, to really just, like, we got to do this. Uh, and that moved very quickly. And there we go, last night, another bombshell. If you're just joining us, this is Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky filling in as co-host today on the Leslie Marshall Show. We're in studio with Ken Good, He's senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. So... I mean, can if you can help our listeners, because I think uh, I recognize that the call for a special counsel would mean that there was some degree of independence from the executive, from Congress, um, and there was a value of having that voice. But help our listeners kind of understand contextually what having a special counsel means um, for the investigation as it moves forward. So the special counsel is a prosecutor that is overseeing the investigation. Now that happens regularly in all criminal investigations that the federal government runs. But the difference here is that it's outside of the chain of command of the Justice Department. It is, it is uh, an individual who has broad authority and wide discretion in how it, uh, it to pursue a particular case. And the actual specific grant in, uh, of uh, authority in this case is also partic- pretty broad. Mm-hmm. It gives uh, uh, Jim Mueller, or, uh, Robert Mueller, the opportunity to investigate any links or potential coordination between uh, Trump and the, and the Russians during the campaign, any other potential crimes that emerge from that case. Uh, and then he can also go back to the deputy AG and ask for even more uh, authority and expanded scope. So this is a broad grant of authority that that uh, uh, Mueller has pretty wide latitude to, to just go where the facts lead. And he then can make the decisions on his own to prosecute individuals in court. And so this has really taken the entire investigation, almost every decision about it, outside of the chain of command from inside the Justice Department. Now, is there any concern that Mueller still reports to the deputy AG? I think that's still the chain of command. And then I saw a lot of statements coming out last night of Democrats praising this move, but calling it a good first step. So I'm curious to know what steps need to follow. Sure. Taking your your, your first point, um, the uh, special prosecutor can only be fired for cause. Uh, that means that you know if there's misconduct, if there's a conflict of interest, you know very serious violations of proper conduct could result in the firing. That doesn't mean that they can never get fired. You know this is this is politics. You can you can try and force through a lot of things, but the regulations really only provide them uh, for being to being fired for cause, and that does grant a, speci- a significant amount of independence. Additionally, the political understanding of the special prosecutor, the independent counsel, um, is that there is that barrier 
And so if if Trump or his Justice Department were to try and fire uh, Mueller, that in and of itself could be considered an impeachable offense. And so, so there really is a high bar. Now, what needs to happen next? It's important to realize that this is now just the criminal investigation. The special prosecutor is going to be uh, looking at it like a regular prosecutor would and is going to be examining whether crimes have been committed. And if no crime has been committed in this particular area, it is not going to pursue that, that investigation. Now, that isn't the whole story of what happened with Russian involvement in the 2016 election and doesn't really get us all the way there to understanding what they were doing, why they were doing it, and very importantly, how we can protect ourselves from doing it again. So now that we've got this very clear line of authority on the criminal side, it is very, very important that Congress maintains its role in investigating what actually happened in the uh, in the 2016 election from the Russian interference side so that we can make sure that as we go to 2018 and to 2020, we can make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up Congress, you know, um, for many of our really? listeners. I know. I'm like, <laughs> You're the only one. Can glad. you do something? And, you know, it, it is, it was fascinating. Like, the last week, I think one of the polls that I saw on CNN um, said only about 18% of the American people wanted this investigation, wanted Congress to handle. 78% were calling for um, this special prosecutor or special counsel. And I think it speaks to this broader issue that we have around Congress um, and particularly around uh, a number of members from the Republican Party who didn't want to say, yes, we want to see a special prosecutor. It has been interesting over the last 48 hours to now see them trying to change or adapt their talking points to say, oh, no, actually, you know, we, uh, we a special prosecutor was okay, but we wanted to make sure that nothing stopped here in Congress, and, you know, I really want a 9-11-style commission. And, and you're starting to see, you know, this, uh, the way... I would say the gymnastics uh, as you're watching these members um, try to contort themselves around previous statements when last week it was about party loyalty and now we're moving beyond them and where they wanted to go. It's amazing to to hear how many Republicans welcomed the appointment of Bob Mueller and you think back to just 24 hours ago there were a grand total of two Republican elected officials who were supporting (laughs) a call for a special prosecutor. So yeah, I guess guess when you have a good idea everybody wants to take credit for it but um, uh, but no, I think uh, look, uh, this Congress, another thing that we learned late yesterday that has just been, I think, overblown by the special prosecutor news uh, was that there a tape surfaced uh, mm-hmm. recording uh, senior House Republicans talking in the summer of 2016 when Kevin McCarthy, who's the number two ranking Republican, said, I think Trump is on Putin's payroll. Ha, ha, ha. It's supposed to be a joke, but I mean, come on. Here he has, and, and he, even if it is a joke, how can you, how can that be somehow acceptable? Another thing about that conversation that is, uh, you know, all of the attention is is on the line about uh, McCarthy thinking that uh, Trump was on Putin's payroll, and justifiably so. But my gosh, there's a long discussion between Ryan and McCarthy and and uh, Mike Rogers, very senior Republicans in the House, uh, talking in detail about how the Russians were uh, uh, engaged in this massive information campaign. They were hacked the uh, the DNC. They were involved in our election. Everything that we have been saying about what the Russians have been doing for the last year 
and that they have been denying, get them behind closed doors talking to each other, and, and they're they admitting it. You yeah. know, th that's such an important point. We focus a lot on what impact the Russians had on our presidential race, but it's important to remember that they also tried to impact congressional races in 2016 as well. And a lot of these House members used the claims that came out of the hacking that Russia and WikiLeaks put forward to advance their own political campaigns. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's not just about Trump, it's also about their own political careers. Absolutely. I mean, we had, now we have a CIA, CIA director, Mike Pompeo. He was a member of Congress mm -hmm. and he ran for re-election in November. He quoted from WikiLeaks all the time in 2016. Now he's like, we're going to prosecute WikiLeaks. You know, it is, uh, you know, it is remarkable uh, what, uh, how complicit the Republicans have been. Yeah. And you know, I, I recall one of the most explosive moments in any of the Senate hearings on this over the course of this part of this year, when Clint Watts, a former FBI agent, a uh, uh, former uh, uh, State Department official, uh, was asked, you know, why were the Russians able to have so much success? Uh, and there was a pause from any of the panelists, and finally he says, they had this success because the President of the United States and the Republicans used the material day after day after mm. day after day. Mm. They were the mouthpiece for the information that the Russians were putting out there, and that's why they were successful. I mean, we did immediately after uh, this story really began developing in, in the aftermath of the election a count of how many times Donald Trump cited WikiLeaks in that month of October to November, and we counted over 160 times. That's, I think, more than several times a day professing his love for WikiLeaks and everything it contained because it allowed him to formulate his thesis about Hillary Clinton. It built the framework and poured the content into it for how he defined her. So when you have Republicans saying, well, it didn't matter because it didn't change the votes because it didn't hack the machines, but it impacted the campaign and it impacted the narrative. And if it mattered what Trump said, then it mattered in influencing our elections as well. You know, uh, this week for our listeners, CAP hosted um, the CAP Ideas Conference where we had a number of great leaders and thinkers from all across the country. And one of the participants um, was none other than Susan Rice, uh, who shared that the greatest weakness of our country is our political polarization. And I thought that that was so significant, and I think it was one of the first standing ovations of the whole conference, but I thought it was significant in that if you are a, a foreign foreign country and you're seeking to exert control or to change kind of geopolitical conversations, um, you know, first, let me, let me get a weak leader in there that I can influence, but also let me just create such a, a, a sense of chaos and confusion and mistrust between the two governing parties so that no one can get anything done. And if that was the game plan, it seems like we're there. Yeah, they're succeeding. I mean, the the remarkable transformation from 2012 to 2016, when the Republican nominee uh, in 2012, Mitt Romney, declared Russia as the greatest geopolitical strategic threat to the United States, 
fast forward four years, fast forward now to the early part of the Trump administration. Just last week, we saw Donald Trump mucking it up in the Oval Office with the Russian foreign minister and the uh, Russian ambassador to the United States. I mean, what has happened? I mean, it is just unbelievable. And that episode just goes just, just, just blown by by our Republican friends who used to define themselves in many ways by their opposition to Russia and Russian aggression and <laughs> Russian expansion. And now they're buddies. Not you're, you're a Russian we like, though, Igor. <laughs> Thank just, you. Just for oh, the record. Uh, but how do you feel when you see all these conversations? I have you know, to, I, mean, I have to say, I always, so joke, I, I always joke with people. I left when I was five, and I, I joke with people when I came to America. I used to say that I'm from Russia, even though I was technically from the Soviet Union. It hadn't fallen then when I right, left. Right. But now, because it sounded less bad than the Soviet Union, now I say I'm from the Soviet Union because it <laughs> sounds less bad than Russia. I, You know, I um, don't have family uh, in Russia. I don't really have any strong connections to it outside of being mm-hmm. certainly born there and my family uh, keeping the cultural traditions mm-hmm. alive, and I try to as well. It It does feel... I think it adds to the anxiety of the moment. I'll mm. say that. You know, mm. I think we're all here kind of frustrated, depressed, working through this day to day. That extra layer of Russia, um, I think, is a little challenging. But for some reason, and I, this I'm happy about, you know, there's a lot of Igors caught up in this Russian <laughs> story right. as well. That's but right. nobody has really connected me. People are still shocked to learn that my name is Igor. Right. They don't really see it as Russian. So I'm right. holding on to right. that. Right. Um, as something to, you know, it hasn't gotten all bad yet. <laughs> well, I I mean, the other big news of the day, um, Ken, uh, if you're joining us, Ken Good, Senior Fellow, Michelle Jawando, Igor Volsky here on the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, but Trump says he's very close to naming a new FBI director, and mm. the front runner is former Senator Joe Lieberman. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things with uh, Joe that we can get into. I mean, I, I remind people that in January, he was testing on behalf of uh, Senator uh, Jeff Sessions, then Senator Jeff Sessions to be the Attorney General, the same Jeff Sessions who had to recuse himself for having conversations with the Russian ambassador. Uh, what is going on? I couldn't think of a person who seems less appropriate for the moment <laughs> than Joe Lieberman. You know, a career politician. He has no federal law enforcement experience at all. He's 75 years old and we're talking about a 10-year appointment uh it you know what is it about him that makes him qualified to be the head of the fbi you know his record on things like civil liberties are is pretty bad uh and he doesn't have any connection to the fbi he doesn't have any experience running an agency like that uh, it's the, almost exactly the kind of person that you would think would be a, a terrible pick. And, you know, when we heard that John Cornyn might actually be uh, considered for the, for the job, people like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham were saying, we don't need a career politician mm. to run it. Now I wonder what they're going to say. But, right. I, you know, I just it, I, I, I guess you can't put anything past this, this White House, but, you know, they have a, a real, real, real problem. Uh, with their credibility in the FBI. And if they put Joe Lieberman in that job, it certainly isn't going to help it. Ken Good, Senior Fellow here at the Center for American Progress. You can find him on Twitter at Ken, K-E-N-G-U-D-E. This was a great show. I always 
always wonderful being a part of the Leslie Marshall family. So good to be with you guys. So good to host this with you, Michelle. And I hope you'll check us out, Thinking Cap. You can find it anywhere you get your podcast. And leave a review. Give us a rating. Leave your comments. Tell us what you want to hear about on the show because this is the show for the resistance. Leslie Marshall, we always thank you. Leslie Marshall family, we'll be back sometime soon. Thanks and take care.